Welcome to the CGOB Sports Show podcast. On this episode, we recap the weekend that was in the Canadian Football League. Big Banjo Bowl win for the Bombers. And also, we check in on the Major League Baseball finish to the season. Could be a lot of fun. Albert Pujols going for history. Aaron Judge as well. We talked to Jamie Bettens coming up on the podcast. The Monday or Tuesday after a CFL weekend, I always do a recap of the action. And we had rematches of Labor Day battles in Winnipeg and Edmonton. There was also some big East Division matchups. An important weekend for sure as the cream. Well, would it really rise to the top? Let's find out in the Week 14 CFL recap. Let's start in Montreal where the Alouettes hosted the BC Lions. Still looking to figure things out without Nathan Rohr. Tonight would not be the night where they would accomplish that. I mean, they did lead 3-0, but then a safety made it 3-2, and then Montreal was off and running. 8-3, 11-3, 18-3, thanks to a Eugene Lewis touchdown grab, 21-3 at the half. Lions can't do anything at all until early in the fourth when Antonio Pipkin, who just isn't the guy, sneaks it in, 21-10. Do we have a comeback in the making? Well, Brian Burnham fumbles. And then Montreal 2-0. Next play, Pipkin is picked. Return for 6. 31-10. That's your final. The Alouettes now 5-7. and seven. The Lions, they're looking hopeless. They're still 8-3, but man, they need Vernon Adams to be good. If he's not, their season's pretty well over. Ottawa could make things pretty interesting in the East with a win over the Argos Saturday afternoon. Toronto, though, decides to get out in front early. 10-0 after 1. 13-0 in the second. Red Blacks hit a couple field goals, so they're down by 7 at the half. And then after some more kicking, it's McLeod, Bethel Thompson, to Curly Gittins Jr. Love that name. For what should be the insurance score, right? Well, hold on. Nick Arbuckle finally gets the team in gear. Down the field, Caleb Evans sneaks in the touchdown. An eight-point game, 24-16. First Argos play after that. A pick, at least, to a field goal, 24-19. Still seven minutes left. Ottawa's got a shot. They start at their own seven, and they matriculate down the field into Argos territory to the 24, the 15. But then Arbuckle called for intentional grounding, sets up a third and 17. He runs for his life, gets only 12. The Argos, though, they're pinned, and they punt it. And Ottawa's got one last chance, third and 14 from Toronto's 39, but they cannot convert. The late rally falls short, and Toronto hangs on to improve to 7-5. and five. The Red Blacks are 3-9. and nine. Time for the Banjo Bowl. You know how it went down, but let's relive it, shall we? Bombers start with the ball. They put together a solid opening drive, capped off by a Zach Kolaris pass to Nick Dembski. The convert is missed. Okay, Riders do nothing. Bombers hog the ball to the start of the second. Dakota Prukop runs it in. Riders run it back down the field for a score. We are halfway through the second quarter. Each team has had the ball twice. Kolaris then finds Dembski for another score, and then Rashid Bailey works some magic. 30, 25, Bailey 20, 15. Look at the block downfield for Leary Orange. Bailey diving. It looks like he's going to be in the end zone for the touchdown. He is. What a play from Rashid Bailey. And the Bombers have their fourth touchdown of the game. Four drives, four touchdowns, 27-10 Winnipeg at the break. Not an ideal start, admittedly, to the second half when Mario Alford returns the kick 92 yards for a touchdown. Team straight field goals before Kolaris hits Brendan O'Leary Orange for his first career score. It's 37-20, starting to get out of hand. 40-20, Fajardo, strip sacked, leads to another Prukop TD sneak. One more touchdown from Drew Brown to Dalton Schoen. 54-20 is the final. The most points the Bombers have ever scored in a Banjo Bowl and their biggest margin of victory in a Banjo Bowl game. And now to Edmonton, where the Elks were looking to avenge a close loss on Labor Day to the Stamps. Uh, I don't I don't think so, guys. 
No, I don't think so. Calgary scores first on a pick six. Edmonton with the answer. Calgary scores again, then blocks a punt and scores again. Blah, blah, blah. Field goals 27-13 at the half. And then Tommy Stevens scores his third short sneak TD of the game. And then a fourth? What's going on here? Jake Mayer says, uh... Can I have a touchdown, please? Okay, thank you. Hits Malika Henry for a 50-yard score. 56-28 is the final. Hope you have the over in those two games. Edmonton has now lost 14 straight home games to tie the CFL record for longest home losing streak. That's not great. And in their four games this year against the Stamps, 0-4 outscored 161-75. Things aren't good for the Elks. The Stamps, though, they're looking like the biggest threat to the Bombers at the moment. Anyway, that's week 14 in the books. We're just a few weeks away from the end of the season, and there's no shortage of storylines out there. Seattle looking to end a long postseason drought. The Jays in the mix. Aaron Judge gunning for the AL home run record. Albert Pujols keeps hitting dingers. He's up to 697. And let's talk to our friend Jamie Benton's about all of it. He's the former commissioner of the Manitoba Junior Baseball League and our go-to guy on all things baseball. Jamie, let's start with Pujols. He's 42 years old. He's having this renaissance. You think he gets to 700? I I think he gets to 700. I I think he's he's a bit possessed in that respect. He's been working extremely hard. He's kept himself in pretty reasonable shape, and uh, you know his position and and the amount of taxation on his body is minimized right now. So he's pretty fresh to to go and get. 700. I think it's pretty exciting. I, I love watching it. Um, I was fortunate enough to play against him in college and uh, got to see him before he was an absolute superstar. And so to have that small tie to to the guy is kind of cool for me too. So when you got to see him play then at that age, did you know right away, oh my God, this guy's just way better than everyone else? I did about 20 minutes into the first time we played against him when he hit one off me that uh, is probably still landing. So I got to find out firsthand very quickly who this uh, Albert Pujols guy was down in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. You've given up a home run to Albert Pujols. Absolutely, I have. It, there's, it's, not, uh, it's not for today's talk, but uh, it's a great story nonetheless. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, we'll, we'll come back to that someday. Oh, before we get move off him here, He's had 18 home runs this year. Last year he had 12, and uh, with the Dodgers, five with the Angels. Really, with the Angels, he disappeared for years. Do you ever wonder what could have been if he just stayed in St. Louis all these years? Absolutely. But at the same time, you know, players leave because the situation maybe isn't favorable for them, and I I think it just wasn't at that time. Um, But it just goes to show you that, you know, these these uh, superheroes, if you will, are human underneath that uniform and uh, situations change, their lives change and and they're not the same player when they go to other teams. We've seen that numerous times. And I I think that that's really just a product of circumstances to what happened to Albert. Um, However, if the if the situation presented itself and it was optimal for him in St. Louis, we might be looking at an absolute record being smashed and maybe the greatest all-time home run hitter in Major League Baseball history. I think there are definitely people out there that think he'd have like 900 home runs if he stayed in St. Louis because through his first 10 years, he was Babe Ruth. He was putting up numbers that no one had really ever done before. So let's uh, let's talk about another big slugger, and that is Aaron Judge, who coming into today has 55 home runs with still a few weeks left in the season. Is he going to break Maris's record? And in your eyes, is Maris's number the record or is it Bonds? 
you know, in order to hit a home run, you you know the the talk about enhancement, I guess, performance enhancement is is one thing, and and it makes it a tough pill to swallow for some. But the the pure hand eye coordination in order to hit that many and to to take as many walks as he had, you know, sometimes two or three times in a game intentionally and still, you know, sometime later on in the game, get maybe one chance, one pitch and still hit it out is pretty special. Uh, I'm certainly not condoning, you know, performance enhancement, but, um, you know, I do give it to bonds for that part of it. But to me, um, I think it's just very special in New York to, to be compared to Maris and beat the 61. And I do think he'll get there. I do too. And right now the Yankees have kind of slipped and fallen, but they're still going to win that division. As we uh, look at the races now, honestly, they're not great. The wild card teams in the American League, they look pretty set. Baltimore's five and a half out. The Central is still up in the air a little bit, though Cleveland just had a big weekend and Minnesota did not. Uh, over in the National League, I guess the the Braves and Mets going for first in the National League. The loser is a wild card team. St. Louis looks like they've got the Central, the Dodgers, the West. Milwaukee's only two out though behind Sa- San Diego in the wild card. Are you kind of disappointed? There's expanded playoffs this year, but really, there's not a whole lot left to figure out. Yes and no. I, I mean, I, I think it led to a lot of excitement in the month of August, and and that trade deadline, you know, was a was a little bit early for me um but the fact that so many teams like baltimore and minnesota yes they've dropped off maybe in the last seven to ten days but up to that point those races were heated up and and you were still talking about the red Sox at that point you were still talking about you know a few other teams and and you know the white Sox and a few others are still kind of in it um but it is a little bit underwhelming at this point uh i think five games is pretty tough to make up at this time in in the season uh, especially when teams are getting the odd off day and it's all interdivisional. So you might see a lot of split series and, and make things a little bit tough. Toronto last week going three and one in Baltimore was a pretty big dagger to the Orioles on the topic of the Blue Jays. No, you're a big fan. How are you feeling about them right now? Uh, very good. I think the bullpen is, is starting to shape into form. I like Julian Merriweather coming to the mix. I think they're going to play with a few more pieces here as there's some guys down in Buffalo getting some more innings right now. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see really what they choose to to employ for their, their rotation, for kind of a three-man setup. I mean, Gossman is, is pretty much a lock. Manoa is absolutely a lock. And then you have to wonder if Barrios is there or if it's Stripling, because of the numbers that Stripling's been putting up the past little while. He's been virtually unhittable. He's in the top five pitchers in the American League since the All-Star break. So it's pretty hard to argue with those numbers, although he is prone to kind of the long ball once in a while too. And Barrios has that swing and miss stuff so in a three-game series it I think that that's the part here where it gets interesting for Toronto as to what they're going to figure out and how they roll it out in the playoffs so there are the familiar contenders in the American League the Yankees the Rays the Astros are all there again Cleveland's been in and out the last number of years the Seattle Mariners have not made the, the playoffs since I was nine years old and I'm 30 now it's been a long slog of irrelevancy for that franchise. Right now, it looks very good for them to make the playoffs for the first time in over two decades. How good do you feel for that market that they're finally going to get a chance to taste October? I think it's great. Um, I, I think it's needed to have that you know, type of team out in the West Coast like that. And the Seattle fans are extremely hungry. Could you imagine 
a Seattle versus Toronto matchup mm. where you know the the fans from Vancouver try to do whatever they can to gobble up tickets and make their way down. I, I could see uh, I could see them almost trying to close it off to Canadian residents. You know, in purchasing tickets, I've seen that done in hockey circles before, and uh, it would be pretty interesting to see uh, the amount of Blue Jay blue, I guess you could say, in the stands if they were to somehow match up against each other. Right now, as you look at who's out there, the Dodgers are, are way ahead. The Braves are looking better. Uh, DeGrom is back for the Mets, though Scherzer's hurt again. Who right now is your World Series favorite among all the teams in Major League Baseball? You know, uh, early on, I kind of looked at the way Houston was pulling away from everybody and thought, you know, is this is this the team? Do they have that pitching? Uh, I looked at their batting order. Um, but then when, when looking at the stats, there's an interesting outlier here for Houston. They're only 10 and 12 against the American League East. They don't have a great record. They're mopping up on their own division right now. And I think that that explains the record that's pulling away from everybody. It's a true advantage in that they get the home field. But playing all those American League East teams and even Seattle that's going to get into this, um, could make it very interesting, and and I don't think Houston is my front runner anymore. Um, I have to wonder if Atlanta is ready to strike again and repeat, um, and then the Dodgers, you know, do they have it? I, I I don't know if there is a clear cut at this point for me. I I think there's so many questions unanswered going into these final few weeks that at least that part will be interesting because nobody knows who's going to win it. Well, I can tell you this much as a Red Sox fan whose team really cratered over the last couple of months. I'm rooting for Seattle. I'm rooting for Toronto. And in the National League, I really do not care what happens. Maybe the Padres, but they've, they've, you know, they've, they swung big at the trade deadline. And it hasn't really gone so well for them so far. Uh, let's just talk about the rule changes before I let you go. They were announced at the end of last week. Talked about them a bit on the show. Uh, first of all, the pitch clock. It's going to speed up baseball by a lot. I think it's going to help uh, really move the game along. Your thoughts on... The implementation of a 20-second pitch clock when there's no one on base, or 20, 20 seconds when someone is on base, 15 when there's not. Yeah, the unofficial uh, Latin rule, as I'm hearing it in a lot of circles, is some of those uh, Latin-born pitchers seem to have funky movements and a lot of hops. Although Kevin Gossman, uh, you know, some of those Simbers, some of those guys have some interesting quirks to themselves. So I don't think it applies to any any uh, one player, that's for sure. Uh, I think it's great. I think it will keep the game going. I don't think it allows um, for the pitcher to control the game or the defensive team to slow the game down. Um, so you might see some swings here and you might see more offense even because of it. The game will go faster. The average time I think was shortened by about 26 minutes in the minor leagues when they implemented. And so, you know, shortening it up, maybe even creating some more offense, I think will be a plus for the fans. What about the shift? So no longer can you have more than two infielders on one side of the ball or on one side of second base. They got to be two on each side, feet on the dirt. You like this? I do. I do. I think the players love it too, because they're going to make a lot more money. I think there's a lot of players right now that are having numbers suffer because they're a pull hitter and you have a second baseman playing in Rover territory in slow pitch terms right now. And, 
you know, it's taking a lot of outs away from them or a lot of base hits and RBIs. So I think the players are going to love that. I think the fans are going to love it because, again, it's creating more offense, which creates more excitement. And fans are coming to see balls hitting the seats these days. They're coming to see players running. Um, no hitters are exciting, but uh, when, a, when a team's getting decimated and there's four different relievers coming in to share in on a no hitter, it's not nearly as exciting as maybe a 7-6 game where, you know, any inning is has the possibility to get turned on its ear and on the note of more running this rule of limiting disengagement so a pitcher can have two basically either pickoffs or step off the rubber uh, during an at bat and if the third time does not involve getting the runner at first out it's a balk and so the runner gets the base anyway this strikes me as something that's going to really increase the drama on the base paths do you think that'll happen Absolutely. I think that the speedsters of the game, to me, these rules are all generated towards exciting facets of the game that will enhance kind of that that fan enjoyment. And so you have an absolute burner that's standing at second base, you know, trying to get into true scoring position or, or get even closer at third base with less than two out. And you know that that pitcher can afford to do another move or balk. Um, that's creating what is very short, but seems like an eternity for that pitcher catcher combo. And, and that extra jump might see extra stolen bases, much more excitement being with the ball being thrown around the infield. And, uh, and I like it, I, I, especially even the bigger bases as well. So, not only can you probably take off a little bit earlier, maybe in anticipation, but you've got a bigger base and, uh, and a greater opportunity to, to kind of hook slide and be safe as well. It appears to me, Jamie, that baseball is just trying to go back to its roots here. Back in the day when a game would take two hours, batting averages, a lot of base hits, a lot of balls in play, a lot more stolen bases. Compared to what we've seen more recently, the game develops into all these shifts. It's basically home runs and strikeouts, not a lot of action. Do you feel like we're going to see baseball in more of its original form going forward? I think so. I just think it's, I don't know if it's going to be in its purest form, but, you know, when you think about the pitchers having less time, um, you know, you may see a few more mistakes and a few more mistakes means an advantage to the hitters. And if the shift is not on, then the hitters have a secondary advantage in that, you know, they don't even have to get the ball perfectly to put it to the right spot because they're not shifting on them anymore. Uh, and then when they, those hitters get on base, you're going to see them run a little bit more. So the, the long ball hitter is, has taken over the game. Um, if you think back to some of the, the players, the Kirby Puckets, the Paul Molitors, the Tony Gwynns that could hit for average and run a little bit. I think that that type of player has kind of been overshadowed by the high strikeout, high home run hitters. And we may see that level of player kind of elevate a little bit more. You think Bo Bichette is exciting to watch right now um, without any kind of shift on. He has the most uh, opposite field base hits in the major leagues right now. And in order to... If they can't shift on him either, uh, I think, you know, a guy like that stands to be one of the most exciting players and maybe even now slide into like an MVP category as well. So that that I like that. I like where it's going. How many baseball players do you think have 30 or more steals this year? Off the top of my head, I, I bet you it's a very, very short number. I would say one or two. It's three. John Birdie, who is a more limited player, second baseman for the Miami Marlins has 32 at Leeds baseball Jorge Mateo and Cedric Mullins both of Baltimore each have 30 with about twice as many at bats as birdie does from Miami so basically the stolen base is dead and it's going to become alive again 
I think so. And I think it makes it a little more exciting. It's it's going to allow, you know, certain players like a John Birdie to to collect a regular paycheck in the big leagues. Um, you know, the, you look at the Blue Jays roster and there's a few guys that can run a little bit there. Um, you know, Whit Merrifield probably gets an extra two years added to his career now because he's a valuable asset as a utility player that can run. So when you can throw those players into a game in the ninth inning, um, it, it probably helps you know, the the average baseball fan now to maybe understand why these bench players that only get in once in a while, uh, why they have such a valuable place in the game and how you can't win without having a full team. Well, it's a great time of year for baseball. Jamie, appreciate your time as always, and uh, I'm sure we'll check in once October gets here. Absolutely. Take care. Well, thank you very much for listening to the CJOB Sports Show podcast. If you like what you heard, guess what? You can hear more every weeknight on CJOB from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Of course, that is when the Jets are not playing because if the Jets are playing, then I don't have a show, but I'll be part of the pre- and post-game coverage. Anyway, thanks again for tuning in. Subscribe if you'd like. We're available on iTunes and other places I'd imagine. So farewell until we meet again. So long and thanks for all the fish. So sad that it should come to this. We try to